You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. I'm Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Will Storr, who is a journalist, author, and teacher, most recently the author of The Status Game, also the author of The Science of Storytelling, Why Stories Make Us Human and How to Tell Them Better, Selfie, How We Became So Self-Obsessed and What It's Doing to Us, and the first one of yours that I read a while back, The Unpersuadables, Adventures with the Enemies of Science. Welcome, Will. Thanks, Gregory. In every one of your books towards the end, you have what you call a note on your method. And I want to start with that, your method, because you reference so many academics, so many researchers, and you stitch them all together. A lot of them are authors that I'm familiar with, right, and whose ideas I'm familiar with. But you oftentimes weave them together in new ways, and then you introduce us to authors and scientists we might not have known about. And you combine all these different disciplines, whether it's, I think you even list them every now and then, you know, sociology, history, economics, psychology, literary theory. I mean, there's so many different disciplines represented. And I think you have the freedom as a journalist that you might not have if you were an academic to surf these different disciplines and tell a a compelling story. So I was wondering just if you could tell us a bit about like, how do you... Becoming a journalist like this, is this really a process of self-discovery for you? Are you really engaging in the ultimate philosophical enterprise, which is to pursue an understanding of the world, to pursue an understanding of yourself and then get paid for it? (laughs) Or I know you're going to tell me that this is all actually (laughs) your way of boosting your status, (laughs) but I'd love to know the inner narrative that you've been telling yourself as you've gone through these exercises. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very much me educating myself. So my background is I had a terrible education. (laughs) I went to a very bad state school, drank heavily uh, through my teenage years, failed lots of exams and didn't go to university. So I'm a very, very badly educated person. (laughs) So what I found was that when I became a journalist and when I became a freelance journalist, then, you know, suddenly I became, you know, I was interested in the world and, and what freelance journalism gives you is this great opportunity to pursue whatever interests you. So so you haven't got an editor telling you, you must do this story or that story. You're just following your nose. And then what happens is you, you work it out and make stories sound compelling to newspaper editors. You pitch them the story and then suddenly you can pick up the phone and there's Jonathan Haidt on the other end of it, (laughs) or, you know, some of these world experts and you can actually ask them questions. How does this work? So it's like an incredible kind of bespoke university education that I've been putting myself through and other people's money Mm -hmm. for the last sort of 20 years, essentially. I think it's actually kind of a great way to learn. I think in today's world, you can learn pretty much anything without having to go to a university. I mean, you might not be able to get these folks on the phone, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, but you know, you can yeah. you can almost get them on the phone by watching them on YouTube or, or watching them on, on Coursera or reading all of their, their books. But let's jump right into the topic of the latest book, The Status Game. I'm, I guess, an economist more than anything else. And, and economists tend to view the individual as being like this homo economicus, someone who is, even though they're technically maximizing utility, whatever that is, usually boils down to maximizing wealth. And I think, you know, you offer a more nuanced view, which is that, well, wealth is certainly one of the things that people are maximizing, but ultimately wealth is just one of many ways that humans pursue 
status. Now, look, if I was a biologist, I'd say we're maximizing reproductive success, but status seems to be the proximate mechanism, which ultimately feeds into this reproductive success that biologists are talking about. So should we then be thinking about humans as homo hierarchicus or, you know, I don't know what the Latin <laughs> would be, homo status, statusis? Or, yeah, you know, I is think that, so. Is that how we should, we should be thinking about it? Yeah, so, so, so the logic is, is that, you know, we've not evolved to crave money because money hasn't been around long enough. We've evolved to crave something else. And, and, and that status, we, we've been pursuing status since before we were human, since we we're animals. Um, it's just that we're, now we're human, we, we, we have different ways of, um, of achieving status. And, and it's directly connected to reproduction, to survival and reproduction, because, you know, as it is for so many animals, the more status we get in our groups, the, the better everything else gets. So, so in the groups in which we evolved, the kind of mobile forager kind of hunter-gatherer groups in which we evolved, the more status we got, the safer our sleeping sites, the better, the, the better food we got, the more food we got, the greater our choice of access to our choice of mates, which is obviously very important. Um, uh, the, the better things were for our children, which is, you know, incredibly important for survival and reproduction. So it's this basic heuristic that we have in our heads, go for status, because if you go for status, everything else gets better. And, and, and as I say, that, that's true for not just humans, if that's true throughout, you know, throughout the animal kingdom. And it's true for us. And money is just one way of that, that we measure status. We are incredibly, you know, brains are, we are subconsciously obsessed with status and we're incredibly chippy about it. And, and the brain's always, you know, looking into our environments. One of the studies I talk about in the book, they talk about measures of orange juice, where if you give people measures of orange juice and one person gets a lot less than everybody else, they get really annoyed because the brain is like, it, it, it sees that measure of orange juice as symbolic of our status and money's the same. I mean, obviously money has lots of other um, benefits. It gives us lots of material goods. So it's not, I'm not saying that, that it's just status, but money is a way that we measure status. And, and some people measure their status with money and they get obsessed with money, but other people aren't that bothered about money, particularly that, you know, they, they, they use it much more as a survival thing. And and they measure their status in other ways. So, so yeah, I, I think I think it's the, the money thing is, is quite a narrow, it's very modern view of the human animal. Yeah, and I think that it operates at a much more subconscious level. There are plenty of people who will be unabashedly say that they're pursuing money or, or wealth. And sometimes I guess some people will say they're pursuing fame, but that's sort of a subset of people. I think your claim is that, you know, everybody is constantly pursuing status, constantly worried about status. Status is the oxygen that we survive on, and that it occurs even in the minutest of settings. You, you describe how, you know, when, the minute you walk into an elevator, everybody is immediately sizing up each other to figure out, like, who is the high status, who is the low status person. When you're driving down the road, you can't help but think that someone's trying to outstatus you by, yes. you know, accelerating past you or, or cutting yeah. you off. It's something that, that is occurring almost every minute of every day you're engaged in these status competitions. Yeah, absolutely. And that's to say, you know, we're incredibly chippy about our sense of status. We're incredibly sensitive to it. It's mostly subconscious. Um, you know, the brain's very good at telling this story about us, this heroic narrative about us, that we're not really interested in status. But, but you've only got to sort of think about your behavior carefully, you know, and I think people can find it. But the other thing about the status game, and the reason I frame it as a status game is because it's not, it's not just status. There's also this other thing of connection. Because we're tribal animals, the first thing we need to do is to, is to connect into a coalition. And then once we've connected into this group, we jostle for status within the group. And, and so connection and belongingness is this, it's not the subject of my book, so I don't write about it much. I write about it in, in one chapter. But it, it is equally important. But, you know, people are also very interested in, in connection. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I've noticed watching the new, is, you know, the new, new series of Curb Your Enthusiasm is being broadcast at the moment. 
And Larry David is is somebody who's very high in in his in relatively high in his need for status and very low in his relative need for connection. So he doesn't really care about people like you know be, people accepting him. He doesn't really care about belongingness, but he's very 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 interested in his relative status and all, all of the kind of chaos that he inspires with his behaviour. Most of it is his chippiness about about the way he's treated in that kind of status way. Right. And so it's about choosing the game that you're going to play and then playing it. So choosing your game is like figuring out which organization or community in which the status is going to matter for you. And I think what's unique about humans is that we have so many different games happening at the same time. Our primate ancestors had, there was really just one game and there was really just one hierarchy or maybe there was two. I mean, there was the the male hierarchy and, and the female hierarchy and the rules of the game were different for males and females. And you didn't get to choose right, which one of those games you were playing. But, <laughs> yeah. but what's unique about humans is, is not only that there's so many different games going on simultaneously, but there's rules are so fluid, lots of different types of games. So I think one, one of the ways that what we do have in, in common with our primate ancestors is the kind of feedback loop between low status and health outcomes and high status and good health outcomes. And, and this is not just because you do have the access to resources. It's not just because you have like more food. It's actually like the status itself is the food that helps you to stay healthy. Could you talk a bit about, I don't think you, you didn't spend a lot of time, but you did reference the Whitehall studies and some of the biological mechanisms that are yeah. work there. I mean, one of the ways I think about status is it's this, it's a social nutrient. It, it's, it's like an essential nutrient that, that we need, but it's a psychological nutrient rather than one for our for our bodies. And, and when we don't, when we don't get that nutrient, we begin to suffer very badly. The sense that we are kind of low ranked is, uh, is strongly predictive of suffering kind of serious depression. We, we become vulnerable to suicide when our rank, when we kind of drop in rank quite seriously and that, you know, the faster the drop, the greater the risk of suicide. So psychologically, it's very bad for us. I mean, in the book elsewhere, I talk about humiliation and humiliation is this very kind of painful, often sudden sense of not only your group, your game is reducing your status to zero or less than zero, really. It's kind of kicking you out. So it's forbid you're kind of forbidden for claiming any status in the future. And so interestingly, you know, humiliation is implicated in the very, very, very worst of human behaviors. So, you know, in the book, I talk about terrorists, serial killers, incel spree killers, honor killers, and even um, when sociologists look at genocide, they find that status dynamics are involved very often in, in, in genocide. So humiliation, this kind of very sudden and painful public loss of status, drives people to, you know, really cruel and evil acts. And yeah, it, it even affects us physically. So, so, so in, these, in, in these very famous or British set of studies called the Whitehall Studies. So Whitehall is the British civil service. It's, it's the part of the area of London where the civil service is based. So huge, huge organization, very stratified, as you might expect. And so this scientist, Dr. Michael Marmot, led this series of studies and he called it the status syndrome. So it's, it's like this idea that the higher you were up the hierarchy, the lower your mortality, the better your health outcomes. And as you, as you indicated, you know, you might automatically think, well, that's because they're rich and they can, they can afford a personal trainer and this nice salad for lunch. Uh, but it wasn't that at all. It was independent of these, these other lifestyle effects. And that literally, if the person at the very top smokes and the person one rung down, so almost at the very top smoked as well the one rung rung down would be significantly more likely to get sick as a result of their smoking than the one rung 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 up. And there are very, very significant differentials. And they found this in men and in women. And then they experimented with baboons in a laboratory setting. And they found the same health differentials as you went down the baboon hierarchy. 
And then they cleverly conspired to rearrange the boon hierarchy. They, they monkeyed with the monkeys. Uh, so, so a different person was on top and then left it for a while and measured the health outcomes. And the health outcomes changed with the hierarchy. So why is that? And you know, one of the leading theories comes from a, an area called social genomics. And social genomics looks at this idea of how our social worlds, our external social worlds, affect the function of our genes. And there's a very brilliant American social genomist, Professor Steve Cole, who I spoke to. And he, he believes, the current studies indicate, that, that, that what's happening is that, is that when we feel um, this kind of reduction in status, our bodies are reading that as a signal of, of panic, that, that things are not going well in our environment and are preparing our bodies for assault, attack, you know, putting us into this state of inflammation, which is sort of evolutionarily, we're supposed to be in, in, in for a very short periods of time. It's very bad for us to be in a state of inflammation for, for long periods of time, but we are in these kind of modern, crazy hierarchies. We evolved in these very small forager groups with very small status hierarchies. We didn't evolve to be in Whitehall with these huge hierarchies. So, so it's, it's this idea that it's kind of alarming our bodies and our systems and that alarm is feeding through to the function of our genes. Yeah, it's really kind of puzzling. I've had experience with, with sort of a toxic boss and bad situation where all sorts of threats to my career were, you know, were there and the physiological impact was just profound. And it's like, well, wait a second. I mean, this, you know, this dude's not going to kill me. I mean, you know, like, but it's almost as if your body thinks this person is going to jump out of the bushes and, and peck you to death or whatever. Right. I mean, your body's preparing for that. And so Randy Nessie, who I interviewed, he, he talks about depression as a way of getting you to stop whatever you're doing. And I think you, you referenced, you said depression's kind of like getting yourself out of the way, like removing yourself from the visibility of dominant individuals because yeah. they might, when they see you, they might actually attack you and, and kill you. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, like when I, you know, when I, if I get a bad review on Amazon or somewhere for one of my books or even in the newspaper, <laughs> you, you know, it, it, it's a physical reaction for, you know, it lasts for like two or three days, not on Amazon, two or three days. It's much more, you know, in a newspaper. I would have thought you wouldn't check that. I don't check Amazon anymore. No, I've learned better than that. But, but, but is it your, and you know, your body fills with adrenaline and that's literally preparing your body to have, to have a fight with somebody. It's as if you're on the savannah again and you're face to face with, with an antagonist. That's what you, that's how your body's reacting, even though it's a, a review in a newspaper. So it's, so yeah, it's completely, that, that's exactly what's happening. And, and yeah, there's this idea in psychology that the, the depression is there to, as a, as a protective mechanism to kind of compel us to draws to the back of the, the safety of the back of the cave, essentially. And so kind of reserve, you know, the, the fight fire status is going badly. So, so, so withdraw from the back of the cave and protect yourself. And, and we enter this, this state that they call self-subordination, where we, we just basically start attacking ourselves and telling ourselves we're useless and we're rubbish and we're terrible. Uh, and that's the brain basically effectively saying, stop, remove yourself from this game. You're failing, you're failing, you're failing, protect yourself. So, 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 yeah, I, I, you know, I think that's quite compelling and, and especially, you know, that we've all been, you know, the vast majority have been depressed, experienced depression, even if not clinical depression. And, it, and that's what it feels very much like. It feels very much like when we're psychologically healthy, we're out there in hero mode, attacking the world. Yes, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to succeed. I'm going it's, to, it's worth putting my time and energy into this project. But when you're depressed, the obstacles of the world feel insurmountable. You know, it's very much a story of. You can't win. You can't do it. There's no point. I'm just going to stay under my bed and hide. That's very much for me anyway. The psychological experience does meet that definition of, of depression. 
Yeah, I remember when I would read about the ancients being exiled, right? Like Ovid or Seneca getting cast out of Rome, and, and they would talk about how traumatic it was. And when I was young, I was like, oh, well, hey, if I got exiled to Paris, I mean, I, it wouldn't be such a bad thing, right? You know? And I guess that just reflects the fact that we have the capacity to play multiple games, right? And switch from, from one game to the other in a way that they didn't really have that ability back in, in those days. Yeah. And also, you know, being ejected by your group is a universally traumatic thing. You, you know, we, we've evolved in these, in these forager groups and ostracization was a punishment in those groups for antisocial behavior or for any, you know, lots of kinds of behavior. Sometimes that, you know, treading on the men's path or, you know, seeing a magic flute could get you in trouble. So, so, so there are all kinds of things in these groups that get you in trouble. And ostracization was, a, was one less down from execution. And ostracization was a, would have been a death threat in those days. And that's the time when our brains were evolving. We, we, so we still fear ostracization almost as, you know, I'd say almost as much as death, but it's an extreme fear that lots of us have. And it feels terrible, even if it's, you know, quite mild. There's a, there's a famous set of studies I wrote about in Selfie where they experimented with, the psychologist had this experience of, he was in a park. I think it's a Canadian psychologist. He was in a park with his dog and there were these two guys playing Frisbee. And the frisbee went sort of off course and he caught it. And then they started playing with him. And he's like, oh, great. And then they just stopped playing with him. And he found it really upsetting. And then being a psychologist, he's like, why, why do I care so much about this? And then he did these very, very interesting experiments, which shows the feeling of ostracization is just this fundamental experience of social pain. And, you know, pain is a signal that there's something wrong. And, and social pain is, is the signal that something's gone wrong in your social life. It's a warning that there's kind of flushing. Yeah, I think they've done MRI studies that show that it's actually indistinguishable, at least in the MRIs, the social pain from physiological pain, which could account in part for the um, massive consumption of opiates. These people are not experiencing direct physical pain, but are experiencing some kind of social pain, feeling of rejection. And, and so I want to talk about that. Is there like a thermo rule of like a thermodynamic rule of, of status? I mean, it would seem like a zero sum game, right? So Robert Frank talks a lot about positional externalities. And, and as soon as you achieve some higher status, by definition, someone else has to have like lower status. So if we're trying to maximize welfare or utility, is it kind of a, a pointless thing to try and do? There are the happiness studies that show that an increase in wealth doesn't really increase your happiness. And even across societies, you don't see necessarily an increase in overall happiness. So if we're thinking about social policy or if we're trying to design a society that optimizes subjective well-being, is this a fool's errand? Is there a finite amount of status to go around and, and for every winner, there's a loser? Or is, no, we, there's not. So, yeah. Have we figured out a way around that? <laughs> no, that's a really interesting question. It feels like that's going to be true, but it isn't true. It depends on the group. So you'll get some groups. So I write in the book about Enron, who's, who's the classic example of an organization where there was a finite amount of status. It's very hard to come by and it created this kind of toxic world. And it's weird because, you know, it's definitely true that status is relative, but it isn't a zero sum game and there isn't a finite amount of it. So one of the reasons that social media, I think I would argue the reason social media has become universally so huge all over the world is because it's a status generating machine. Millions and well, billions of people um, who live otherwise kind of relatively ordinary lives can go on social media and they can earn status. They can show off their possessions or their political beliefs and they can attack other people and, you know, and play these status games. Social media has created all this status where there wasn't any kind of status beforehand. And one experience that I kind of wish I had written about, but I didn't write about in the status game, I, you know, I should have done in retrospect, was the experience I had in LA a few years ago reporting on CrossFit, which I don't know if you've heard, you know, CrossFit's that kind of, this kind of keep fit craze. 
the joke about CrossFit is a cult, you know, it's kind of a cult. People, get, people who go to CrossFit get obsessed with CrossFit and they tell that joke, which they also tell about vegans is how do you know if you've met somebody at CrossFit? You don't have to know, they'll just tell you within three seconds. And, and, but CrossFit is really interesting because the whole thing about CrossFit is it's a very generous status game. People go to CrossFit sessions and they get all the connection, but it's all about the group cheering you on and going, yeah, yeah, you can do it. You can do it. And, and everybody's celebrating each other. And so that's why it's so addictive. So yes, CrossFit is culty <laughs> and it, go, it can go too far because people, you know, famously people have got, have damaged themselves at CrossFit, but they damage themselves because the status game is so functional. People, you know, the culture of a CrossFit group is that you are completely generous. You are, you have, you untrammeled with the status that you give other people and it gets addictive. People get addicted to the status that they get from CrossFit groups. So that's another example of, you know, a healthy group versus the Enron model, which is the unhealthy group. I guess it gets more complicated when you're thinking about money as a status symbol. But even then, the way our brains are, we, you know, again, we've evolved in small groups and we still experience our lives in the sense of smaller groups. So most of us don't, I mean, it's obviously different for everybody, but most of us aren't comparing ourselves to the very top of the pole. So we're not waking up in the morning going, oh, Barack Obama's got, you know, so, like me compared to Barack Obama, that's, I'm rubbish or, you know, we're not doing that because we would have a breakdown. We're comparing ourselves to the people that we're playing our games with. And most of us are people in, in our own lives. So that's where we're getting our status from. And not only in the form of money, but also, I mean, you know, fundamentally, what is status? It is the sense that we are valued, the idea that we are a valuable person. It's not about the belonging is different. As we said, this is, I value you. You're, you have a value as a good person or a competent person. You know, money is a way that we can show our value to the world. And, and we do do that. I, unless you're a person to whom you've attached your identity to money and, and you really play that money game and you know, money is a value for you, which is, you know, fair enough. But if you're not that kind of person, it doesn't have to be that important money. As long as you've got enough to survive and that, that you're not sharing your life with lots of people who aren't significantly more wealthy, because that's going to be uncomfortable for most people, then money doesn't have to be, you don't have to be wealthy to be playing the status game successfully. Well, so we all know that there's this thing called overestimation, right? Where we all think we're better at everything than we actually are. And that this actually corresponds with psychological health. Right? So this over, you know, I'm a better driver, I'm a better teacher, I'm better everything. And so that sort of suggests that law of thermodynamics doesn't apply, right? If we can all kind of delude ourselves, tell a story that makes, where we're, we're the hero. And so are you saying that something like CrossFit, the reason why it is increasing the overall amount of status is because the lack of competition within the group, or is it because membership in that group allows you to perceive yourself as being higher status relative to the folks who are or not in the group, right? So, you know, you describe Heaven's Gate, you have all these other wonderful examples of these tight kind of status games. And so if everybody could just belong to a cult and everybody belonged to a different cult, then they would all say, well, we're, we're the holders, or is, do they have to somehow tear down the other groups in, in order to bolster their group status? Both. So, I mean, they, they said that, you know, if you think about human social life, we earn status in two ways. One, we play games with the members of our coalition. So if we're in a CrossFit group or a political party or a cult or religion or whatever, we are trying to earn status, prestige from the people in our group. But also our groups are usually playing status games with other groups. My parents are Catholics, they're Roman Catholics. They say quite mean things about Protestants. <laughs> They've got that sense of rival with Protestants, you know, and they don't like Protestants. Terrible. But that's and, well, and, and I guess as long as the Protestants never, never heard these thoughts, then it wouldn't necessarily make them feel bad, right? So if everybody just said bad things about other groups 
amongst yeah. themselves, <laughs> yeah. then there would there wouldn't be this there wouldn't be this tearing down of do you have to tear down others in an effective way in order to achieve that status, or can you just tear them down in your own head? No, you don't have to. We don't have to tear other groups down. That's not right. And, and actually, that's interesting because you know, when I went into this, that I thought you did. But Jonathan, you know, the psychologist Jonathan Haidt is, is an example of he's somebody that writes that you can be patriotic and nationalistic um, and, and not condescend and look down on other nations and cultures. So I didn't know that before I did this. I just assumed that, that if you were patriotic, that you, that, that, you know, you feel that your nation is the best, but you know, apparently not. So, you know, it doesn't have to be this toxic thing, but you know, we, we, we are tribal by nature and we are chippy about status. So what I would say is it's very, very easy for the human brain, for the human, you know, mechanism to tip into that stuff because it's another store of status. We get into skirmishes all the time with perceived rivals. If it looks like our rival is going up in the world, that's going to trigger us because that's relative status. And we're going to feel like we have to tell a story to tear them down or even actually try and tear them down. So it's very easy for that kind of healthy pride in our group to tip into something darker because that's how we've been for so long. Back in the tribal days, we weren't necessarily warring with a neighboring tribe. That might happen. Skirmishes and, and territorial disputes were, were common back in those days. So, so, so it, is, it does seem to be in our nature that we kind of very easily kind of tip into that kind of thinking. So, so you could potentially increase the overall amount of subjective status if, if every group really perceived themselves to be superior in some way. I mean, you mentioned how obviously you can't do apples to apples comparisons, but you kind of mentioned that the, the happiness levels or the self-esteem levels of British people was kind of highest when there was the maximum amount of pink on the map, yeah. right? Yeah. Taking pride yeah. in, in your yeah. country's yeah. achievements is, is like one way that you can bolster your status. So even if you're kind of lower down on the, in the pecking order within your group, if your group is above the other group, then you can feel pretty good about yourself, right? Yeah. And this has really changed my perception. You know, I'm a left-wing person. I'm not patriotic. I don't, I'm not proud of being a Brit. I don't care about any of that stuff. And I, and I always, you know, this is my prejudice. I always thought of nationalistic people as just racist. That's, that was my slightly unpleasant, dismissive thought about them. And this taught me a lesson because we all play status games and some people play status games with their nation. Some people being a Brit or being an American is a source of status for them. And why not? Why can't it be that way? And, you know, the, the quote that I put in the book was from Laurie Lee, the, the famous British novelist who was, you know, alive back in the days of empire. And he wrote, you know, very vividly about, he was said he was the poorest of the poor. They were, you know, their, their, their diet was basically cabbage. That's what they lived on, cabbage. That's how poor they were. But they would look on the, as you say, on, on the map of the world, on the, on the classroom wall and the size of the British empire. And, and he said, we, we'd look at each other like as if we were centurions. It, like it was their victory. And that, you know, and, and, you see the same thing with football fans, with soccer fans. I mean, I'm sure it's the same in the, in the US with, you know, baseball and American football. And over here, you see that, you know, soccer fans, they get so much status out of their football team. They go to the football team at the weekend and watch them play. And if the team win, it's absolute ecstasy for them. And if they lose, it's a disaster. You see people in tears at the end of this football. And again, as a non-sporty person, I didn't used to understand that at all. But now I get it because it's that status. And that's a status game for them. And, you know, do you want to see an example of a status game in action? Just go, to, go to watch a football match in Britain or any weekend during the football season and you'll see the agony and the ecstasy. It's silly. It's a ball. It's a leather ball being kicked around. But that's how, that's what human brains are like. That, that's how needy we are for status. And that's how readily we play status games. You know, if you attach your kind of identity and your sense of status onto this other thing, 
this football team, then it can be a source of great joy for you. And, and you could say as well that, you know, football, football is a, if you're, if you're supporting a, you know, a team like Manchester United that wins a lot, football is a, is a status generating machine. It generates status for, for millions and millions of people, billions of people around the globe. It's a huge force for good. So your subjective feelings of status depend on what game you're playing. And you talk a bit about celebrities, right? And conspicuous consumption. If somebody drives around in a Ferrari, that makes them feel good. But presumably when people see that person drive around the Ferrari and they're, you know, you go or whatever, just knocks them down a peg just a little bit, right? And although we're primarily playing local games, our perception of what's local depends kind of on our exposure to media. So, you know, before social media, I remember thinking that if people in relatively poor neighborhoods were watching television shows like Dallas. I don't know if you remember that TV show, right? Where, you know, they have all these TV shows yeah, about yeah, the rich, yeah, yeah, rich yeah, and yeah. the famous or, you know, Robin Leach, remember he used to interview yeah, all these, yeah. these rich and famous. I mean, that can't yeah. but make the viewer feel like they are lower status. And I think you talk about how people have a defense mechanism where they would just, ah, yeah, but, you know, look at all their problems, right? <laughs> you know, look at all the... They would try to figure out some way to kind of denigrate or take down that celebrity, right? Yeah, that, that's it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it partly is look at all their problems. I think in the, in the football context, it's uh, if, you, if you don't win the, win the match, you, you, they, they tell a different story. We, we play with greater spirit or, you know, they, you know we, we play a cleaner game. There's always a story that you can tell that restores your sense of status. And people spend a lot of energy doing that with their, you know, with their groups. But certainly with the rich and famous, it, it's a slightly different thing. And, and, and again, it always goes back to the original how was life in those forager tribes in which we evolved in? One of the sort of stats that I found that sort of really made this come alive for me that I put in the book was that we've been living in settled communities for about 500 generations. If you go about 500 generations, that's the dawn of agriculture. But we were living in forager groups for 100,000 generations. So it's just an unimaginably longer time. And we've, so we've still largely got those brains. You know, evolution hasn't stopped, but, but we're still, we, we are still foragers to all intents and purposes we've got those brains and in those groups, you know, they were relatively egalitarian. They weren't actually egalitarian, but relatively so, because they were very small. There wasn't private property. So nobody could accrue all this wealth and become a king. There were all these checks and balances. So because as, as, a, as, a, as a creature, as a species, we're unbelievably chippy about status. Everybody in those groups were chippy about everybody else's status. So there were constant social mechanisms in place to make sure that nobody got too big. And so, so you didn't get big leaders in those, you know, big man leaders in those groups. You typically, I mean, sometimes you did. It's huge variety, but typically you didn't. Kill, they'd kill them, right? I mean, if they, if they'd they got, kill them. Yeah. Yes, they would kill them. They, that, that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So they'd execute them uh, and maybe even eat them, depending on the tribe. So, so it's not a good thing to, to, to have done. We still have those, those brains. So there's a narrow class of people that I say there's people that we don't hate, essentially. And those are the people that we relate to, the people who in our games, who we basically want to become. So the, the celebrities and artists and whoever that we look up to are, are the people that, that subconsciously we're thinking, they're a bit like me. And if I, if I can learn from them, I can also become them. So, so, so rather than kind of hating them, we, we actually, there's this copy flatter conform mechanism that, that kicks in. So we, you know, we copy their behavior. I mean, we, we've all probably been through that. We all know people who've done that, who, who become obsessed with celebrities or whatever and start dressing like them, copying their tastes and beliefs. I remember when I, when I was a kid, I, there was a pop star in the eighties called Nick Kershaw. And I was obsessed with Nick Kershaw. I saw him on morning television crossing his legs in a certain way with his very kind of expansive way with his ankle on his knee. 
And I started doing that at school. You know, <laughs> you know it's this automatic thing that we do. It's just mental, but, but, you know, but it's a strategy that, that, you know, that your brain is going, well, that's a very high status person that I want to be like. So rather than hate on them, I'm going to be nice to them and copy them and, and just absorb who they are and try and become that person. But, for, but that's a narrow class of people. For most people, most of the time, we don't like high status people because it's relative and they're so far above us. They, they, they irritate us. So when you're talking about Dallas, it's true that, that people are looking at, on the lives of Dallas and, and feeling resentful. But what was Dallas? It was about, it was a story about how awful and immoral and terrible, you know, largely speaking, these people were and, and all the scrapes they got themselves into. So really that, that's what Dallas is. If Dallas was a show about how amazing rich people are, it wouldn't have been successful because <laughs> those aren't the stories that we want to hear. You know, when we read the newspapers, we want gossip and scandal and divorce and, you know, all that stuff. We don't, we don't want to hear it. We don't, we don't really want to, unless you're a fan of Kim Kardashian, nobody wants to read a story about how perfect and amazing Kim Kardashian is. We want the opposite. So, so yeah, that, I think that's how stories often play out. And that's why the media, you know, we, we slag it off because it's so toxic, but ultimately I'm married to a magazine editor. I've been in, worked in media. Magazine editors are obsessed with what people want. They're not dictating narratives on people. They go, what do people want? What do people want? And frantically giving it to them. And it's not the best of human nature, tall poppy syndrome, but it, but it, is, it is universal. It's found all over the world. I mean, what, one of the studies I, I talk about in, in the book is, this, is a neuroscientific study where they put people in brain scanners and they told them a story about somebody rich, successful, popular, and good looking. And they saw that in their brain that the areas associated with physical pain become more active. And then when, when the story continued and that person suffered a collapse in status, the areas associated with pleasure became more, more active. And they found that in, in respondents on Australia, so, you know, Western individualists, but also in Japan. In Japan and East Asia and, and the West are often seen as these kind of opposites in terms of culture. So it's, it's universal. People don't generally like big shots. Right. So if you're interested in having a sensation of high status, presumably you can choose your own pond to some degree. Robert Frank wrote that book. So if you are at Whitehall and you're relatively low ranking, presumably you could go and start your own watercolor club and be the president of the watercolor club or the, the local kennel club or somehow become an important person in a different domain to offset that. I mean, humans can do that in ways that other primates can't. In the other primates, you, you just have this one hierarchy and that's it. But we can be low status in one part of our lives and maybe high status. You know, every man is the king of his castle. Wasn't that sort of the idea? And, you know, you go, go get a dog and yeah. <laughs> dog looks up to you. So that wakes up for, in part, for the way you're treated at work. I, I think that's right. The dog, dogs, again, I didn't put this in the book, but I'm a, I'm a dog lover. I've got two dogs. And, it, and it's always struck me you know, dogs are our, our most domesticated animal. We've been living side by side with dogs for at least 10,000 years. And dogs have done this brilliant thing of working out what we want. They know what humans want. And what dogs do is two things. One is they protect us. But the other thing is they give us status. Like when I come home from work, my dogs go mad and it feels great. They love me. You know, they're like, oh, you're, you know, you're, you're amazing. And, and so that's not an accident how dogs behave when the owners come home. Dogs know what people want. And, and you know, I didn't put this in the book because it's just an idea in my head. But I think it's true, you know. None of these behaviors are by accident. And I think it's indicative of, of how much we need status, how, how our dogs treat us, you know. But you can choose your own porn. But I think there are limits, though, because you've got to remember genes are really important. And th there's this idea that, that people talk about the myth of p perfect self-control. So if you read a self-help book, the average self, then 99% of, well, 100% probably of self-help books will tell you, you can be whoever you want to be, do whatever you want to do. And unfortunately, that isn't true. We are genetically constrained. We have 
certain talents and abilities. We, we were raised in certain ways. So you can't literally do what you want to do and be really good at it. But you can, you know, choose your own pond. And one of the things that sort of occurs to me is that I don't know if you have the organization, the Samaritans in, in the US. If you volunteer for the Samaritans, uh, you know, you go through your training for however long you go for training. And then you're on the phones and you're literally saving people's lives. I mean, that's what you're doing in, in your spare time. You're talking people down from the ledge, literally. Like, that's an amazing thing. And it's easy to be cynical about status, but I'm not anymore. You know, I think, it, as I say, it's this essential social nutrient. And that's a game that you can play. And if the other areas of your life are failing, go and save some lives. I mean, Jesus, that's a win-win because you're helping other people, but you're also, you know, you're also helping yourself. You are undoubtedly a person of value in the world, if that's what you're doing with your spare time. So, so yeah, there, we have this amazing capacity, humans, to create our own games. I mean, that's what computer games are as well. They're status games. And, you know, I think, as, as I argue in the book, that's one thing that it's the joy of computer games. It's a competence. It's a success game. You play a computer game, you get really good at it, you hit the scoreboard, and it's addictive. And again, that's another eye-opener for me, because I'm not interested in computer games, but I now feel like I understand people who are. Right. So if you want to encourage good behavior, turn it into a competition, right? <laughs> and all of a sudden that'll bring out the best in, in people. But you mentioned that social media is a status machine, but I think a lot of people would argue that it's, it probably produces more feelings of low status than high status, because while one is broadcasting all of one's amazingness, you're being continually exposed to not only other people's amazingness, but also all of the, the withering criticism. I mean, a lot of people like to say, well, you know, Kids nowadays, right? I mean, the world is different. In your book on selfie, I think you're kind of making the claim that people have been writing about narcissism since Christopher Lash and everything. But is there something about the social media, the way it is operating right now, that we haven't yet figured out a way to, to adapt to it, that we're in a disequilibrium right now where it is doing harm to the total amount of kind of status and self-worth that we have? So I don't think it's the, the sense that if you want people to behave well, put them in a competition with people, because I think what's really important is the incentives. So, so you know, we attach, it, it depends on what you attach status to, what kind of behaviors you attach status to. Um, you know, whatever you attach status to, humans are going to do. You know, we want status. In, in the book, I tell the story of that island in Micronesia, where they, where you, you could earn the, the title of number one if you grew a massive yam. Yeah. And so everyone started growing massive yams. And, and, and you know, they, they, these were like 12 foot yams. They were I didn't like, know that yams could grow for years <laughs> and years. But, but this is the ingeniousness of, of the human, human condition. I mean, this is back in the 50s. I mean, and so, you know, you attach status to yams. We work out how to grow amazing yams. So whatever, you, whatever the incentives are, whatever, wherever the status is, that's what we'll do. But I talk about modernity in that way. The Enlightenment. What was the Enlightenment? Well, it was a, it was a new status game. It only happened. Modernity only happened when we specifically attached status to the discovery of new and useful knowledge. And then when that happened, it was this roller coaster. It was this runaway effect, and it kind of spread around the world. And social media, I think, you know, the incentives. I mean, I think what's happened there is a lot of these websites started off as something else. And, and what's happened by kind of instinct and trial and error. People like Jack Dorsey at Twitter and Mark Zuckerberg have discovered status games, and they they kind of gamify the status stuff that's happening there already. So you've got follower counts and blue badges for the elite people and ups and downs and, you know, what status updates on all this stuff. I don't think there's anything new happening there. I think that often the experience certainly is negative. The science is very much in flux. You know, what you find is that the psychologists who, are, who spend a lot of time on social media, 
think the science that says social media is bad for you is very bad. <laughs> and the psychologists who aren't that much on social media tend to believe the opposite. And I, and it, I think it is very much in flux. My own suspicion is that they're going to find that it's mediated by personality. So I think that if you're somebody that's naturally extrovert, you're going to thrive on social media because you're very good at making friends and connecting and you thrive on attention, even if it can be negative. But I think if you're somebody that's more introverted and somebody that's high neur neuroticism, I think it's true that social media can be very upsetting. And, and you know, and I, I don't like social media. I, I don't use it anymore for anything but plugging stuff, <laughs> you know, so it's a commercial thing. And if it wasn't for my career, I wouldn't be on it. So I think it, it very much depends on who you are, whether social media is damaging or not. I do suspect that it can be especially damaging for sort of for teenage girls, people who are very, very body conscious. I don't think it's a coincidence as a Ryan selfie that, that since social media, we've seen an absolute revolution in, you know, for, for the negative, in my estimation, in how young men have now body image problems. I was a teenager in the 90s and in the 90s, we're all skinny. We all smoked and took substances we weren't supposed to take. And that's what we did and ate pizzas. And, and these days, kids, you know, they, they eat protein bars and salad and spend their times in the gym. And my God, you, you know, we have this show Love Island in the UK. I, I don't even have Love Island. This is a reality show. And it's just normal these days for young men to have these unbelievably beautiful bodies. And like, literally when I was growing up, I knew no one like that. There was no one like that in, in my world. Like people like that were these w weird people in gyms. And now it's most young men have the, so, so now young men are suffering from the same perfectionistic body image issues that women have suffered for, for generations and generations. I don't know how many generations, but certainly men have caught up quick. And I don't think that it's a coincidence that that's since the rise of social media and Instagram, it's too much of a coincidence. You know, I think it's good that they're healthy, but I also think the body image of young men, you know, the, the, the bar, no, nobody cared about men's bodies when I was a teenager, as long as you weren't you know, overweight, that was the bar. Now it's, you've got to look like a God, uh, otherwise you're, you're low status. And I can't believe that that's a positive, especially that they've got to alter their diets and, and, and there's lots of reports of soaring steroid abuse. I mean, these are not positive effects. Well, you talk about perfectionism more generally as being a potential problem for us right now. And is this related in part, you think, to the obsession with self-esteem? Kids are, they're encouraged by their parents to think highly of themselves, which again, one would think that that is a healthy thing, but there's evidence to suggest that people's self-esteem is in many ways more fragile as a result of encouraging self-esteem as opposed to say, you know, resiliency. Is there, where does this perfectionism that you just, that you write about come from? Well, the self-esteem, yeah, self-esteem issue was, was the kind of core story that I told it selfie. And, you know, again, it was a story when I was growing up, everybody was obsessed with self-esteem. And when I had difficulties at school, it was always, oh, he's got low self-esteem and he just needs to love himself and all this business. And it was just a mistake. It was just completely wrong. What happened was, some academics in, uh, well, not even academics initially, but some people in California in the 80s saw this correlation between successful kids at school and self-esteem. So the successful people had high self-esteem. So they thought, well, if we make everybody, give everybody high self-esteem, everyone's going to be successful. Well, they got the cart before the horse. <laughs> it turns out that, they, that the successful is the highest self-esteem because they were successful. So, but that got lost. <laughs> it became apparent, as I write, in, in the late 80s, but by the people who were promoting this idea, most notoriously, John Vasconcelos, a politician from California, from what is now Silicon Valley, actually. We spent the 80s and 90s and, and a lot of the noughties. And, and as you say, probably lots of parents are doing it still today, telling our children they're amazing and special and wonderful. 
but it's not a good thing to do because actually, well, you're thinking self-esteem, you should really think status, I think. And that, and we get status when we prove that we're of value. So your self-esteem is, is your sense of, of how much status you have in, 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 in yourself. And if you're, if you're really good at school and you're passing your exams, you feel good, but you've earned that feeling. That's the important thing. You've earned that feeling. But what happens if, is if you pump people too full of self-esteem that's unconnected to actual achievement, actual kind of value that you're creating in, your, in the world around you, you become narcissistic. And that's what Gene Twenge, the professor famously found, in, and Keith Campbell was when they looked at student self-reports going through the 80s and 90s and the early noughties, that, you know, the, the rates of narcissism in young people were climbing and climbing and climbing and climbing and climbing. That leveled off around the time of the financial crisis in 2008, and it's now and it's since dropped. So we're in a diff different era now to the selfie era. But, but al alongside that were, were these huge rises in perfectionism. And so perfectionism is it's this sensitivity to signals of failure. So, so when, we're, when we're in a kind of perfectionistic mindset, we're very sensitive to signals that we are well, low status, that we've, we've fallen below the bar. What's happened since the 80s is that we've, we've been in this new, I mean, partly we've been in this new economic era. That's a big part of the story. We're in this kind of neoliberal post-Reagan, post-Thatcher era of high competition, low social safety nets, low regulations for business and banking, low unionization. What Thatcher and Reagan very deliberately did was they wanted to increase competition in the world, you know, and they had success. I don't make any argument for and against that. I think it's a, been a huge trade-off. But what you see is this huge transformation in the Western self that happened in the 80s, before the neoliberal revolution, for those decades during the, the Great Compression, when there was lots of taxes and taxation in the US topped out over at 90%, which astonished me when I read that. And, and, and you know, the difference between the top and the bottom was... We're heading back there. Are we? <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so, so we were kind of communitarian. We were more communitarian then. We, we, we were more kind of had this more virtuous kind of mindset. We weren't so materialistic. And then we changed. When the economy changed, we changed because the game changed. And if you compare who we were in 85 to who we were in 65, it's completely 180. We went from fuck the man, anti-materialistic to greed is good. I mean, it's astonishing what happened to the Western self in that very short period of time. And bang in the middle of it pretty much is that neoliberal revolution. With that neoliberal revolution becomes this rises in perfectionism. It be, you know, we begin measuring our success more and more financially with how much money are we making? How perfect is our bodies? You know, also in the eighties, the keep fit revolution began. Jim fix and, and all that stuff. And everyone was jogging around with their earphones on. So body image becomes much more important in the eighties too. And so that's, I thought that was very interesting that, you know, there, there was a huge study of people in the U S and Canada and the UK. So the, you know, the big three Western neoliberal, you know, areas. And they found that, that perfectionism rates had risen, risen hugely uh, across the decades since the beginning of the 80s. So, yeah, and, and it's bad for us. You know, perfectionism is, is implicated in lots of very unfortunate, you know, psychological maladies, including self-harm, anorexia, body dysmorphia, steroid abuse, and up to and including suicide. So it's not good to have these kind of perfectionistic mindsets. Right. But this also, I think, feeds into the virtue signaling wars that you talk about a bit, because... If we want to encourage good behavior, we, we can make it into a competition. And what's great about humans is that we can create virtue competitions where people can be better people and compete on generosity and compete on goodness and so forth. But that can also be hijacked. We can become these virtue terrorists in a way. <laughs> yeah, I love that virtue terrorist. Yes, exactly. So again, when we're evolving back in those forager groups, we, we, we could earn value by being competent, by being a great honey finder or a storyteller or a great warrior or whatever. But you could also earn status by being virtuous, by being generous, courageous in battle, um, 
a good follower of rules or a good enforcer of rules, that's also virtuous. So we have these kind of, and, and again, that's still true today. We're not used to thinking of people like the Pope and the Dalai Lama as, and Gandhi as superstars, but they are superstars, just like Kim Kardashian and, is a superstar, but they're kind of virtue superstars. So that's another, that's another status game of play. Uh, and it can be the very best of human nature. Like the, I think the, probably, you know, if you wanted to fight, if you asked me what the very best thing about human nature is, is that we've got this automatic reward system we, we, when we do selfless things. So when we do something selfless, we feel it in our bodies. We feel, ah, oh, we go up, you know, we feel, oh, great. You know, so we, re we reward ourselves with a little status bump when we do something virtuous. And other people, the people in the lives reward us too. They automatically say, amazing you did that was really kind of you so we feel great and and that is that is the best of humanity you know that's not something to be cynical about the fact that there's an incentive to be selfless that, that's brilliant and, and we wouldn't have moral civilization i don't think without status i just don't, it wouldn't it wouldn't be here but as you say it, it can also be the very worst of us and and again it's because we're tribal and our moral worlds are local to our groups so different groups have different moral you know, sacred, symbolic moral laws. And, you know, in the book, I talk about some of these really horrific moral universes that exist from our perspective in, in groups around the world, including groups in which it's seen as morally correct when a, when a young man reaches adolescence that they move into the men's house and basically have to endure years of ritual sodomy by older men. I mean, you know, it's rape, it's mass institutionalized rape, but they see that as morally good. And to us, that's horrific. But, you know, morality doesn't exist in the real world. This, this morality is, is an aspect of our shared imagination. You can't see morality under a microscope. It's not a scientific thing that exists in the world in, in, in a material way. We all decide it's the rules of our game. So what happens is that we, that we have our own moral, moral laws and our moral symbolic beliefs. But when another group has a different set of moral beliefs, that we take that as an attack on our sense of status. Like our beliefs are often our criteria for claiming status. So in the book, I talk about an anthropological study of people who became Muslims in an area of West Africa in the, I think it was in the seventies that he did his, he did his work and he looked at how the, the, these very poor African men, the ones that joined Islam thrived because they had this status game to play. They had this moral framework in which they could rise and they, they worked hard and they did all the rituals and learned the Quran and they got, they became celebrated. And, and then he compared this to somebody without faith who became a peanut seller and, was just, and just failed and was miserable. But then what happens if, if you're the Muslim and somebody comes along and they're a Christian and they say, actually, all those beliefs, all those beliefs on which you've pegged your status, I think they're rubbish. I think they're not true. And actually, my moral beliefs are the correct ones. Well, you react like you react as if somebody's physically attacked you very often because that's an attack on your all the meaning of life that you believe in. It's an attack on the very structure of reality as you see it. It's an attack on the game you've been playing for years, all the effort you've put in. Somebody is saying that's worthless and actually it's worse. It's less than zero. That's when, as you know, in your great phrase, we become moral terrorists because very often our moral beliefs are our criteria for claiming status. That was Jerome Barco's phrase who, who did this work. These Islamic beliefs were these guys' criteria for claiming status. And we defend that criteria, just like we defend if somebody takes it from us, it's like they've taken property from us. That's how it feels in the body. If someone's taken your car from you, you know, status is incredibly precious to us. And if somebody challenges our criteria for claiming status, which is just imaginary, then my parents, they're Catholic things, you know, is imaginary stuff, but it's very real to the subconscious brain. In your book, The Unpersuadables, you say that the scientific method is in many ways contrary to our human nature. It requires us to suspend our allegiance to these different narratives that we have that basically make up the rules of our community and the beliefs of our community 
and you highlight how persuasion is perceived as a form of dominance. So if you persuade someone, it's like defeating them in battle, so to speak. And if you are persuaded or if you encounter evidence that is undermining your beliefs, you know, you feel like you're under attack or you're threatened. So how did the scientific revolution enable us to to overcome that. I mean, I don't think we have. I think you know that that's very much alive and well. That this this idea that we we don't want to see any counter, you know, any disconfirming evidence. I think yeah, if, if someone's persuading us, then I think they're successfully bringing us onto their team. I, I think what I think what happens is if somebody attacks us and says you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, and we take that as this, it's a ter- it's like a territorial attack. But the scientific method, yeah, it's fascinating. And I tell the story in the status game. And it began as what was known as the Republic of Letters at the time. And it exploited the, the early postal system that was in place across Western Europe. It began in Italy. It began as this kind of very aristocratic, niche aristocratic pursuit. So it became fashionable for young Western aristocrats to have curiosity and to become experts in esoteric subjects. So, you know, how trees work and sumptuary laws and all this kind of, you know, the astrology. And they, they started writing letters to each other with their ideas and their theories. And then the red letters would come back and the other person would correct them and say, well, have you thought about this? And this kind of spread throughout Western Europe as this network of thinkers. And, and you know, women were involved too. It was, it was you, know, you know, mostly men, but expert men and women who became expert in their in these kind of esoteric domains and they would publish books. And out of this developed basically the scientific method, this kind of status game that had this set of rules, which is that you had to share your ideas. You had to correct other people's ideas. You had to show your data. You had to credit other people when you were influenced by their ideas. Like really extraordinary when you look at the rules of the Republic of Letters. It it is the scientific method that they came up with. It's pre-enlightenment. It's really unbelievable. And then what happens is, you know, as often happens, you know, things come down from the elite. So what was fashionable for the aristocrats becomes fashionable for the ordinary person. And one of the reasons that the Industrial Revolution sort of begins in Britain is because Britain had this uh, glorious revolution that we, that we call it, in which the king and the royal monarchy didn't have total power. And actually, we, you know, we had these kind of early forms of democracy. And with that came in these institutions like the Bank of England and economic laws that enable people to actually make profit from their ideas and keep the profit. You'd know better than me as an economist, but rules about how markets should work fairly, patent laws. And so we had these institutions that, that enabled people when they came up with these new and useful ideas and that became inventions, they could profit from them. And then so suddenly this doesn't become, you know, in Britain, this doesn't become just a game played by aristocrats. It starts filtering down into the middle classes and beneath. And suddenly the whole nation is playing these games. And that's the industrial revolution. Everyone becomes obsessed um, with, with, with discovering new and useful knowledge. It becomes this fashionable thing and people become very, very wealthy. And that spreads throughout Western Europe. And it moves to, the, to, you know, to your country, the US, where it, where it takes over. And then still today, you know, the US dominates the world in innovation with, with Silicon Valley, you know. And so, you know, Silicon Valley is very much playing the games that began in Italy, it, with, with the Republic of Letters. So it's really quite an extraordinary development in, in human life. And it's very specific. It's very specific that your, that your status is now attached not to growing yams, and it's not attached to defending your religion, and it's not attached to serving the king. It's attached to the discovery of new and useful knowledge. And that's what it is. And that simple idea, the, the attachment of status onto new and useful knowledge, Changed the world. That's what became modernity. So, yeah, a, a hugely powerful thing. And, and, and you know, in, in this kind of, kind of current age, we, we're not used to feeling proud of being Western. But, but I think this is this is you know, along with the invention of human rights, this is a reason to feel proud of what we started in in the West. 
Although we often see the rise of these groups, these closed-minded groups. I mean, I think particularly in times of crisis where you see the emergence of these tribes that have non-overlapping beliefs and it becomes really more about their status within that identity group than about the pursuit of truth. You talk about organizations, well-functioning organizations are typically ones where the bosses are willing to kind of listen and be persuaded. And the poorly functioning organizations, at least in today's world, are the ones where bosses refuse to listen and don't make themselves available persuasion. And there's a great story about kind of Microsoft. If you're familiar with the transformation that took place under the current CEO of Microsoft, but prior to his becoming CEO, the culture at Microsoft was one where everyone competed to be the smartest person in the room. So if they had a meeting, you would just talk as loud as you could and overrule anybody who tried to disagree with you. And then when Satya Nadella came in, he had to somehow flip it around so that the, the humblest person in the room, the person who admitted the most ignorance, the person who asked the most questions, that person became the person with the highest status in the group. And I mean, it's such a, a radical thing to do. But once people are rewarded for asking questions and displaying ignorance and learning to listen, then all of a sudden everybody wants to be like that type of person. And in some of my classes, we, we would give out the dumbest question award. And this was this is a really hard thing for business school students because they come in and they're very arrogant, very proud of themselves. And nobody wants to look stupid and nobody wants to raise their hand and, and embarrass themselves. But by turning it into like the you know dumbest question award, <laughs> people would congratulate each other on it completely changed the dynamic of the classroom and, and opened up the room for conversation. So the status of humility through our discussions? How could we do that if we're an organization? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a really interesting question. I hadn't heard the story about Microsoft, but it reminds me of the DNA of the status game. Is in this? It comes from the book, The Secret of Our Success by Joseph Henrik. Yeah, and he writes in that book, I'm dredging this up from the back of my memory, so I might get it not get it entirely right, but I think it was a traditional Jewish judge organization you know, when, when the judges would judge on things. And he, he wrote about how they had a rule where the lowest status judge would speak first, because otherwise... We, my understanding of that was that what was used in, in the British military. At least that's, that's how I've learned oh. the story. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so obviously it's, it's an idea that people have had over, over the time. And, and now it's on Microsoft it sound like they're having a similar idea. And, and it's certainly, uh, it seems like a smart idea. You know, there, there is this kind of conformist thing in us. We, you know, we, we tend to conform to the highest status person. And if the highest status person says something, then we feel like oh, we've got it wrong and we, we're going to take a status dive if, if we say the wrong thing. So, yeah, I, I think it's that yeah, having that culture of in an organization of you want everyone to feel like, like I think the ideal leader surrounds himself with, with contrary voices and you don't want people to feel like they're going to get in trouble if they say no a lot, you know, if they say, I don't think this is a good idea a lot. And as long as I, I think as long as people are treated respectfully by their bosses and they feel they have permission to say no a lot then that's going to be a pretty healthy organization. I mean, the, the problem is, 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 is that I think people are, you know, we are naturally so chippy about status. It's kind of unnatural. If, if we've got somebody in our organization that's always saying, no, that's a bad idea. How long is it going to be before we start this? We start thinking, oh, fuck, you know, <laughs> just, I just wish this person would just piss off, you know? So, so I think it's really difficult. I think it's really difficult. But then, you know, I guess leadership is difficult. I actually look, look up to my wife. My, I mean, I, I'm not a natural leader, but my wife is a natural leader. She, you know, she's a magazine editor. I hear her since, since lockdown, you know, COVID, because she works in the spare bedroom upstairs now. And I hear her on Zoom. She's so good with people that, you know, in her team because... If there's conflict, if they say no, she's firm, but she smiles and she, 
she doesn't take it personally. She makes it clear that, that they have permission to get things wrong and they have permission to behave badly even, and, but she'll put them in their place with a smile and, oh, you know, it comes naturally to her. And I suspect it comes naturally to most leaders and you know, the, the best leaders that, that you feel that meeting didn't go completely brilliantly with, with my boss, but I'm not in trouble. You know, I'm, my status isn't in, in serious sort of risk here. And I think she, she enables people to leave meetings feeling like that. Well, as you say, leaders rent their thrones from the people that they lead. Their lease could be canceled at any time. I tend to read every book as a self-help book because when I read books, I'm, I'm always thinking, how should I live? That's sort of the ultimate question. And I remember I was talking to someone recently on the podcast and I said, yeah, I think of your book as a self-help book. And, and I think he was a little annoyed because <laughs> you know, that doesn't usually sound like a, a, a good thing. But actually it is. And even though throughout the book, I was thinking, how does this affect how I should live my life? Towards the very end, you actually came up with some explicit recommendations for how to play the status game. And of course, you're not advising people like, here's how you go and achieve status, right? There's lots of books out there like that, the game or whatever. I don't know. I've heard of these books, but I think your, your advice is much more subtle and it's really about, you know, how to play the status game correctly, how to play it in a way that is virtuous, that is ethical, and also is more likely to lead to a, a sense of subjective well-being. Could you just tell us a little bit about the advice that you would give to, and I know you have a son, right? And presumably you're going to yeah. be coaching him up on, on how to play the status game. So what, what is your advice? No, my son is my dog. So the beginning of the book, it's, yeah, my, yeah, that's Jones. He's a dog. So, oh, so, yeah. <laughs> there we go. My yeah. lovely boy. Yeah, yeah. It's a joke. It's a joke for my wife. Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> no, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so my previous book was at the gate to park and everyone thought, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Um, so, so, so yeah, I think the most strategic one that's in there is this idea of, of ways we can present to other people. And so there's a whole field of science that's called impression management and how we can optimally present to other people. And for a long time, it was thought there were two dimensions to this, warmth and competence. But recently it's been argued there should be a third element added. And, and the third virtue is essentially virtue, morality. And I thought that was very interesting because in the book, I talk about these three status games that we can play. There's dominance, we're forcing status from other people. There's virtue in their success. And those three ways of impressing, you know, of managing our impressions on other people, they match very closely those three status games. But I don't think that's a coincidence because the idea is that if you approach somebody with a sense of warmth, what you're signaling to them is that I'm not going to play a dominance game with you. You know, I'm a warm person. I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to compel you to attend to me with status. If you approach them with sincerity, you say, I'm going to play a moral game with you. And I'm not going to, you know, be a creepy crawler. Yes, man. I'm going to be honest with you and authentic with you. And that's going to be of value to you because I'm going to tell you the truth, but in a way that's virtuous, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. And if you present with a sense of competence that you're saying, I'm going to be useful, I'm really good at what I do. And that means that I'm either going to be useful to our group and our group is going to raise in status and, or I'm going to be useful to you because you're going to learn things from me. If you can present to somebody with that triumvirate, with warmth, sincerity, and competence, it's very hard to know how you're going to fail in life because that's this kind of blessed I call it in the book, a blessed triumvirate. So, so I think that's the, the most kind of practical, strategic ad, ad advice I give. And more generally, I think one, one of the things that sort of kept occurring to me as I, as I was writing the book, you know, especially when you think about status versus money and about how in, in all these different dimensions, people find when you test it, status is more valuable to people very often than money. So it's this incredibly valuable resource that we have to give. And it's unlimited. You know, we have status to give other people. And we're often quite selfish in, in how we give it to other people. There's a caveat that I think needs to be authentic about that. We can't just be this kind of 
person just going, you're amazing. No, you're amazing. This kind of slightly Hollywood, you know, bullshit, you know, artist archetypally. But you've got to do it with a certain sincerity. But I think a lot of us would benefit hugely of being just a bit more generous with the status that we're giving other people. Our default is very often that Larry David of of when we feel our status is challenged in in even surface ways, we we respond with dominance. We, We kind of try, no. You're not going to get away with that. And we respond with that kind of dominance, that tutting and sighing and complaining. And actually, if we think about responding with prestige, that's good for other people because people want to be around people who are, you know, giving out a status. But then, you know, again, strategically, it rebounds back because you get a reputation as a decent person. You get a reputation as a warm person. And if you're giving out a status, you're going to attract people to you. And I think the other one that's really important is that we just to make sure that we're playing a variety of games. The ultimate, kind of the tightest status game is a cult. And what defines a cult is, the, is this demand that this is the only status game that you're playing. You know, you're, you're not allowed to play other games. You're not allowed to have other sources of status. And that's why cults don't want you to be going to cut off contact with friends and family even, because no, this is it. This is your only source of status. It's perilous to be in a cult because if you're kicked out of that cult or the cult fails or cult leader decides that you're not good enough, and that's a very common experience in cults, it becomes harder and harder to earn status. You're dependent on that cult, but you're also being starved of status. So it can be sort of catastrophic for the self, especially if you're kicked out of the cult. And also the psychological research suggests that that people with multiple social identities, so people playing multiple games are happier than people who are just playing one or two. And I'm not a good case study for this. I mean, I, I don't have kids. I write and that's pretty much what I do. I have too many eggs in the writing basket and I do need to be getting out there and finding new sources of status because it's, it, it's a perilous situation to be. Like if my career tanks, as careers tend to tank, they always tank at some point. I'm going to be in trouble if I don't find a new source of status. So, so, so yeah, I, you need to hedge. I think that, that's the other thing. If you want a kind of successful, generally happy life, you've got to hedge those status games and play a kind of hierarchy of games with one super important one at the top, but other ones that kind of arranged beneath it. So I think that's what you refer to as the, the trade-off mindset, understanding the different ways that you can cultivate status. Yeah, well, the trade-off mindset was a bit more about how to deal with conflict with other groups. Because I think what the storytelling brain does, the conscious brain does, is it takes status disputes and turns them into moral disputes of heroes and villains. So, so, so when, when two groups disagree on moral behavior, one has to win. The example, I didn't write about it, but the example I always think about is um, abortion rights. So, so in the West... Especially if you're a left-wing person, as I am, you tend to agree with the idea that it's women's body, it's their right to choose if they terminate a pregnancy or not. Fine. Okay, so they've won that argument. But when people argue about reproductive rights, it, this kind of moral story of angelic, perfect women and abortion rights people versus evil Christians or evil kind of men's rights activists who say no. And that's really unhealthy, you know, because it's not true. What's actually going on is there's a trade-off. and We've decided that there's a trade-off here. And the trade-off is this, that you're going to give women abortion rights. And so they've got the right to terminate a pregnancy. And what that means is that for thousands, perhaps, you know, perhaps tens of thousands, perhaps more men every year who sleep with their loved one and they fall pregnant, and they actually want the kid. They, they want the baby to be born and they have no say. And perhaps thousands of hearts are get, male hearts are getting broken every year because we've decided that the women have won this argument. And, and I think where this goes wrong, because we, we don't see it, so it's a trade-off. So it has positive and negative effects. The positive effects is the women get to control their body and they get to decide, brilliant. But there is a trade-off and the trade-off is 
heartbroken men. You know, that's one of the trade-offs. And so I think that, you know, we, we, we get it wrong when we class men who are upset about this as evil, because actually a lot of them have just got broken hearts. They're, they're, they're upset. Um, you know, we see these trade-offs in, in, in kind of family law a lot as well. I just think that's a healthier way of, of seeing the reality that it isn't he heroes and villains. It's trade-offs. And actually the, the men who have decided, yeah, okay, you get the right to make this decision, even if I suffer. That's a kind of heroic thing. And we should be praising and respecting those men and sympathizing with the men who are weeping at the loss of this, what could become a child. So, so yeah, that's what I mean by this kind of trade-off mindset. I think it's much more empathetic and, and actually accurate view of what goes on when groups engage in moral disputes. I agree. I think there's one corollary to your earlier point about the way to live and the way, the three different ways to effectively pursue status. And that is if you're in the business of organizing or designing organizations, then you want to design an organization where that's the type of person who's going to thrive. Because what you're telling people to do, it's, it's kind of like a key. And if that key doesn't fit the lock, then those approaches might not always succeed. So, you know, I always worry that when I tell my students, hey, you know, be the kind of person who questions the status quo, be the kind of person who is always seeking knowledge. Well, there are a lot of organizations where you, you put that kind of person into the organization and it's like sending someone into a gunfight with a butter knife. So people need to understand that there are toxic environments, there are Hobbesian environments, there are super unpleasant, violent environments where the only way to succeed is actually to play dominance. And so if, if you go into an organization wanting to be this type of person that you describe, then when you achieve a position of, of authority and power, you have to be sure not to close the door behind you for those sorts of people. You have to maintain an organization where those characteristics will ultimately lead to success. And I think sometimes we forget that there has to be this match between <laughs> different ways of status pursuing and then, you know, the way in which the rewards are distributed. Yeah, I think that's right. And I've noticed, actually, I, I feel that leaders have huge, huge influence over the cultures of their companies, m m more than is often appreciated. You know, we can go into a company, an organization, a restaurant or whatever, you know, the personality of the leader kind of bleeds down into the group. I wrote a novel about Michelin star chefs and, and did lots of research. And I worked in Michelin star kitchens for my research. And it was absolutely true that if the, if the chef was, a, was that stereotypical Gordon Ramsay type monster, everybody else would be too. And if they weren't, they wouldn't be. And so, so, so it, it's amazing that copy mechanism. So, so leaders actually have, I think, have a huge power in working out what kind of behaviors are we going to incentivize? And when you incentivize certain behaviors, you, you're going to get those kinds of behaviors. Leaders are hugely empowered to, to create these kinds of beneficial cultures in their organizations. Well, Will, I forgot to mention your novel, and it's the one book of yours I haven't read. And now that I know it's about <laughs> Michelin chefs, I, I have to now, I have to go buy it. I'm going to go buy it right now, and I'm going to take it on my vacation next <laughs> oh, week, cool. and I'm going to read it because I cook and I, I love to cook. And, and you, you did mention a, an English chef in your book, which was someone I hadn't heard of. I mean, I should have known, right, that he was the first, the youngest uh, three Michelin star chef, and he was English. So I learned something about that. I look forward to it. And also you're teaching writing. Where are you currently teaching these writing? You're going to be doing Guardian it for section Master four. Classes. Yeah. I teach write this science of storytelling for writers at the Guardian Masterclasses. And I'm going to start teaching business storytelling at, at um, section four, which is Scott Galloway's um, very exciting, well, it's a startup, I think. It's a relatively new company, which is specializing in kind of online business training. So that's pretty exciting. Well, that sounds great. Thanks so much for joining me. Appreciate it. Hopefully we'll chat again soon. 
Yeah, thank you. And, and you know, really exceptional questions, Gregory. And I really, you know, really fascinating and thoughtful questions. So thank you very much for engaging so brilliantly with the book. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.